man, do we have some verses this morning. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. And if you remember or watched or were here last week, we looked at the exceeding greatness of God's power. He still has that same power today. He is still moving today. And this morning we're going to see how that exceeding great power has been manifested in the life of every born-again believer. We are going to encounter some of the most well-known verses, at least in Christian circles, in the Bible. And of course, we'll talk about the doctrines that stem from there, as well as how often it is misapplied and therefore misunderstood. Now, this is important, as Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 18, where he said, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Note how he defines a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. A worker in Timothy's case was to fulfill his ministry and do the work of an evangelist. How do you do that in a way that's not shameful? You rightly divide the word of truth. And you shun profane and idle babblings. We don't have any of those today. Here's why, for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like what? And then he names names. He talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Is our faith under attack today? It's under attack from without and from within. And while we're not told specifically what the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus was, it's most likely they were trying to spiritualize the bodily resurrection of the dead in Christ, which is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Now, to overthrow the faith of some doesn't mean that some people had saving faith and they lost it or walked away. That's not what the phrase actually means. But what it means is what Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4.1, that the Spirit expressly says. This is the only time in the New Testament that the Greek word translated expressly is employed. And Paul is wanting to make sure that we get the point that the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, can the doctrines of demons save you? No, of course not. And this is why we have to know what it is we believe. This is why we have to shun idle and vain uh, babblings, as Paul would talk about, or profane babblings. This is why we need to rightly divide the word of truth, because teaching the doctrines of demons can cause people to come to faith in things that are not true, and only the truth can make us free and save us. Amen? Now, this is what overthrowing the faith is talking about. And Peter would mention in 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him, him is the Lord, in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which... 
Are some things hard to understand? Are there hard to understand things in the Bible? Yes. Well, sure there are. That's why we have to get together and examine them and find out what the truth is. And listen to what he says, which untaught and unstable people, what's the next word? Twist, Twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, please note, Peter is saying that what Paul wrote is scripture. Because the wisdom he received was from above, which is first pure. It is the word of God. And the word unstable means to vacillate or to be in constant unsteadfastness. And we might understand this in our day as chasing after the latest spiritual fad or any given new interpretation of scripture. Now, it's interesting that he says they twist the scripture. That word twist there is actually the Greek word that would be used to describe someone put on the rack and the ropes twisted or the wheel twisted to pull their bodies apart in torture. It is also a word that can mean to pervert. And if you remember, pervert means to become its opposite. And therefore, again, we see the doctrines of demon posed in opposition to the spirit and teaching of truth. And some of our verses today have been misused and misapplied, and the majesty and beauty of them have been twisted into license for immoral behavior, which leads to unsteadfast doctrine. Now, I ran across a story this week that I thought is a perfect introduction to our time and to set the stage. And it's a story of the principal of Ridley Hall, which is the seminary at Cambridge University. He was retiring and the school commissioned an artist to paint his portrait to be hung in his honor. And at the unveiling of this portrait, Dr. Dr. Gibson said in his expression of thanks, both to the artist and to the staff and students, he said, in looking at this, I believe people in the future aren't gonna ask, who's that man? They're gonna ask, who was the artist? What a compliment he was paying to the one who painted his portrait. And that's exactly what ought to happen when people look at us. Who changed you? Who made you into this new creation? What is it that happened to you? Why are you so different than the rest of us? Who's the artist? Who is the one that has created or recreated you? Now, there's only one potential title for our time, and it comes from four words in our text, and they happen to be four of my favorite words in the whole Bible, and I hope they'll become yours too. And our title this morning is, But God, Even When. But God, Even When. And somehow all that some glean and teach from these verses is what we don't have to do. We don't have to do this to become saved. We don't have to do that. They focus solely and strictly on the negative. How grace gives us liberty. How the whole Christian experience is boiled down to a single moment in time of conversion uh, or confession rather without any conversion being necessary at all. Well, listen. When you get saved, you begin a life journey that is distinct and in the opposite direction of where you were going. And if that's all we see in this monumental passage, we're going to miss that this passage is about everything that God has done for us while we were yet sinners. Listen, while we were yet sinners, he made us alive. Amen. I'm sorry. Did you guys get that over here? While we were yet sinners, he made us alive. Listen. He is rich in mercy. 
And if all we focus on is what we don't have to do, we're going to miss his great love that raised us up, seated us in heavenly places in Christ, telling us he's going to show through Jesus the exceeding riches of his grace, even in the ages to come, that salvation is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We are his workmanship. He has created us to walk in the works that he has prepared beforehand for us. And we're not going to twist these scriptures. We're going to let them speak for themselves. We're not going to rob them of their transformative power. But we are going to acknowledge, but God, even when. And what we need to walk away with from our time and our text is not what we can get away with because we're saved by grace but rather that how others ought to be able to see how radically we have been transformed because we have been saved by grace. So let's jump into these famous verses and see all that God has done for us and how that should reflect in our lives. Are you ready this morning? Yes. Stand and read with me, please. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others." But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to examine closely these magnificent verses, inspired by your spirit, Paul holding the pen, but directed by your wisdom from above. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear what you're saying today. Speak into our hearts and minds. Correct any errant thinking we may have and help us to see the majesty of these things and not license within these verses. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Where's Dave? When do you guys want to fire up this AC up here? It's a little warm up here on the... I know you guys are probably wishing they turned the heater on, but a little warm up here on the stage. Now, Paul opens this magnificent set of verses by revealing our spiritual condition. He says we're dead. We're dead because of trespasses and sins in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he begins to describe our life apart from Christ as following the course of this world and being directed by the prince of the power of the air, the head of the fallen spirit realm, which is Satan. He identifies the prince of the power of the air as the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience, which therefore leads to the conduct described as following after lust and fleshly desires and errant thoughts and being a people headed for God's wrath with the rest of the unregenerate world. 
Now, this is how Paul describes the life of the dead. How's that for an oxymoronic passage? The life of the dead, meaning unregenerate or simply unsaved people. Now, where do we find this in Scripture, this concept of being uh, dead, so to speak, even though we're obviously alive? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul would say it like this. For as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all shall be what? made alive. Now remember back in the garden, God warned Adam of the consequences of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die in Genesis 2.17. Now at this point in time, when God gave this word of instruction to Adam, Eve had not been formed from his rib as of yet. Now the serpent later came, interestingly, not to Adam, but he went to Eve and began to question God's word. Now we're told in Genesis 3, 1 to 5, that the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Aren't people saying that today? Yeah. I mean, come on, does the Bible really teach this? Well, that can't, that's so outdated, it's antiquated. We don't need to follow after that old school stuff. Hath God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, Satan, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the worm, uh, serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. Well, he's appealing to the lust of her flesh and the pride of life and tempting her uh, with the fruit that looked good as the story continues. And I don't want to make too much of this, but I've always found it curious that in the Genesis narrative, we never see that Adam told Eve that God said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat from it. He never said, don't touch it, at least not as far as scripture is concerned. Now, the reason I wanted to point that out is because if Adam passed something along that God didn't say, it's possible that he opened the door for Eve to be deceived, for he himself was adding to the word of God, seemingly setting her up for Satan's accusation that God is unfair. You know, Adam telling her, well, you know, not only did God say that we can't eat it, we can't even touch it. We can't even look at it. We can't go near to it. And therefore, Adam seemed to package the whole thing, setting Eve up in a sense. And that may or may not be true, but uh, I like it, so I told that to you this morning. <laughs> now, did Adam die after he ate the fruit? No. The, some said no, some said yes. And you know what? Both answers are right. Adam did not physically die, but he died spiritually instantly, and a division between he and God was established at that point. And the next encounter we see is he's hiding from God. Remember, he heard the sound of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and he said, and listen, God didn't know, or it isn't that God didn't know where Adam was, but he said, Adam, where are you? Well, what was the question really about? God knew he was hiding. And Adam said, I hid myself because I'm naked. And he said, who told you you're naked? Did you eat of the tree? What did he say? 
the woman. It was her fault. Now, I think what Satan was doing is what he does today. He was using a half-truth as a tool of deception. Because Adam did die spiritually, but he did live physically. And this is what he's doing in our world today. And this is why we needed to look all the way back to Genesis to establish the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that as in Adam, all die. <clears throat> we find in the genealogy from Adam to Noah in Genesis chapter 5, in 1 and 2 of that chapter, we're told this is the book of the genealogy of Adam, in the day that God did what? Created man. Was that billions of years? No. No. Of undirected natural causes? No. That was six <laughs> night-day cycles, and then God took Sunday off. Now, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam, he took Saturday off. I'm sorry. Today's Sunday, right? <laughs> and Adam lived 130 years. Now, get this. And begot a son, what? In his own likeness and image and named him appointed or set. Now, Eve had been told that there was going to come a son who would bruise the serpent's head. And they were thinking that Seth would be the one. That's why they named him what they did, that he was the appointed one to bruise the serpent's head. But the point for us is that Adam and Eve begot a son in their likeness. What was their likeness at this point in time? They were spiritually dead. And therefore, we as human beings, by nature, are born spiritually dead. And this is why Jesus says we need to be born again. Nicodemus said, wait a minute, how can you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get this, is what he said to Nicodemus. He's, he said, you know, born, uh, being born of water and being born of the Spirit are two different things. You have to be born of the Spirit to inherit eternal life. Adam died spiritually in the day he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and his children were born in his likeness. They were born in a fallen state, and that is why we all in Adam die. To be unregenerate is to lead to the second death. Now, this is a positional truth. We are born spiritually dead and we need to be made alive. And there's only one person that can make us alive. Amen. And it's God. Amen? Amen? Now, David said in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And David understood that he was born a sinner. He was born in a fallen state. And he, like us, was in Adam. And all who are in Adam are spiritually dead in trespasses and sin, destined for eternal wrath forever separated from God. What's our title? But God, even when. Now listen, we're going to do some housekeeping this morning again with all three of our observations. And the first is just this, especially with those who say, you know what, all you need to do is just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and there's no sanctification that follows. And that's what the teaching is uh, by many today, and that's what the grace abusers are teaching. But from our text, we can glean this. Are you ready? Yes. If conduct identifies those who are not saved, conduct can identify those who are. If conduct identifies those who are not saved, conduct can identify those who are. There ought to be a different picture of us after we're born again, right? Yeah. People ought to be saying, who's the artist? 
Who changed you? Who transformed you? Who sanctified you? Who set yourself apart from your former self? And Paul goes into great detail to describe the conduct and the source of the conduct of the spiritually dead. Doesn't that therefore imply, once again, a change of conduct in those whom he has made alive? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, David would say in Psalm 119, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden where? In my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Peter would say this in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. And I think it's interesting we find this from two men who had failures in their lives. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, are we being called evildoers today? Yes. Here's our response. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, David was concerned about his own conduct, even though God himself called him the man after his own heart. Peter seemed to think it was an important issue, even it was evidence of one being saved. And remember when Jesus was tested for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan started throwing scripture at him? He said, hey, you got to be hungry by now, and I'm paraphrasing. Turn these stones into bread. What did Jesus answer with? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan said, it is also written... He will not allow you to dash your foot against a stone, quoting from the Psalms. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because God's going to care for you. Jesus said, it is written, you shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. Now, we need to combat some of the abuses and twisting of Scripture today with our own, it is written. Or this is what the Bible says. And Satan has been twisted, twist, twisting rather, being saved by grace into a half-truth. Meaning you can't do anything to merit salvation, which is true, right? You can't be a good enough person. There's none good, no, not one. We're born separated from God. We're born spiritually dead. But the other half of his proposition today is nothing will necessarily change after you're saved because you're saved by grace. And that half is not true. That's the whole point of sanctification. He begins to work in us. He begins to transform us. I don't know about you, but I am extremely glad that I am not the person I was before I got my life straight with Christ. Because things were a mess and they were not good. And there were awful things going on in my life. And I was doing terrible things. And now I do far less terrible things. <laughs> now they're just stupid things. And I don't know why my hand's in the air. Yours ought to be up there with me. No. Listen. Once God makes you alive, he gives you his spirit. And his spirit is one of power, of love, and a sound mind. That means the things that once controlled you can't do it any longer. Now think about it. Can you fight the good fight of faith when you're spiritually dead? Can you fight the good fight of faith when you're controlled by the prince of the power of the air? No, of course not. This is why Peter would say in 1 Peter 4, 3, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Gentiles in this case meaning the unsaved. 
And then he describes the life of the Gentiles, or their will, that is. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, please note that's not an exhaustive list because human nature says people are going to run down that list and say, I'm not doing those things, so I'm good. No, you're not good. You're, there's none good. We're all fallen in Adam, right? But does what Peter says not imply that the past conduct and the present conduct of the born again are going to be in such contrast that some would say, who's the artist? Who transformed your life? Now, we can't make ourselves alive, but God, even when, and when he does, we change. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of moments. But first, we have to recognize that if conduct identifies those who are not saved, then conduct can identify those who are. Amen? Amen. Now look at 4 through 7 once again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just a little inserted reminder by Paul there. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Paul is talking about the grace of God is going to impact us for all of eternity. There's more to come, and we have a wonderful future awaiting us. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul uses four words to paint a portrait of God's saving grace. He talks about it, or act. He talks about his mercy. He mentions his love, he mentions his grace, and he mentions his kindness. And all of these are expressed to us through the person of and, the, and our place in Christ Jesus. We were dead and helpless, unable to save ourselves. So we needed mercy. Listen, mercy by definition is love for the down and out. And you can't be more down and out than dead in trespasses and sins. And the Lord gave us and extended us mercy in the person of Christ. We were under God's wrath, and the only thing that can triumph over wrath is God's love. We deserve nothing but judgment because of our transgressions and sins, and only grace could rescue us from ourselves and our own eternal destiny apart from Him. And the why of all this is God's kindness. God is good, amen? amen. And does he allow things that we don't agree with? Yeah. Or that wish he would avert? Or uh, act in ways where we uh, had hoped he would? And, and seemingly there is a silence on uh, his end. Of course, God hears us and his hand is not short. His ear is not heavy, amen? amen. But his ways aren't ours either. Now, Paul is clearly drawing a contrast between our former selves and what we are as new creations in Christ, positionally, and uh, we'll talk practically here in a couple of moments. Now, in Psalm 117, this is the whole psalm, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is what? Great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Somebody say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, we've already made this point, but our first point could be the point for all three sections, but we're not going to do that this morning, so you've got more writing to do if you're a note-taker. Now, if we are in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, positionally, <clears throat> can we say that His mercy, love, and kindness, grace, and kindness isn't going to impact our lives 
practically. In other words, isn't it going to change our conduct? He's changed our position in him from dead to living. And therefore, he is going to transform our lives as well. Can we really conclude that because we are in Christ, who is seated at the Father's right hand, that we're not going to be different after he made us alive? Of course we are. Now, we could make the same point, but we're not going to. But we are going to make a point from the whole of what we've read thus far, including the verses we just read a moment ago. And it's a point of observation that needs recognition today. And here it is. Listen this morning. The dead and alive serve different kings and kingdoms. The dead and alive serve different kings and kingdoms. And I don't think we always recognize how important this is. And we could understand it, I think, a little more clearly through the practice or the concept of worship. Now, the worship time is not the buffer for people to come into church late before the sermon, right? It is something that we are expressing to God in thanks, and it's praise as well as worship. Now, Psalm 29, 2, we're told to give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. Holiness. We are made holy in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this was part of the conversation with the woman at the well and her inquiry about, you know, we Samaritans worship on this mountain, you guys worship over there. And Jesus said it, it's, it's not about location. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now, the Hebrew word for worship means to live to declare. To live to declare. That's what the Hebrew word for worship actually means. The Greek word used in John 4 means to kiss the hand. It's a word that would be used to describe a dog licking its master's hand. And what it implies is bowing in homage to or prostrating and submitting to another, again, in homage or adoration. Now, we often refer to songs or music in the church as worship. And the reality is, is that worship is a way of life by definition. It is living to declare. To declare what? The glory of God. Through what? Holiness. We give glory to his name. We worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, we often think of Satan worshipers as hooded, creepy-looking, beady-eyed, beady-eyed humans. I don't know what beady-eyed means, but <laughs> extra syllable, just throwing that out there for you. We think of them as, as wearing these hoods and creepy-looking, standing around a mosaic of a pentagram on the floor, chanting together with some uh, poor teenage girl in a white dress, roped to an altar, getting ready to be sacrificed. That's often what we think of as a Satan worshiper. Now, what does worship mean again? To live to declare. Now, the truth is, Satan worship is just the opposite of worshiping God. And we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. So Satan worship is actually to live to declare lies and spiritual deception. To live to declare lies and spiritual deception. That's what Satan worship is. Are there Satan worshipers today? Yes. Do they all wear these creepy looking outfits and chant? No. No, they live to declare lies. They spiritually deceive even nations. 
But listen, here's something to remember in Matthew 12, 30. Jesus said, say Jesus said. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather or draw people to me scatters abroad. And then in Revelation 13, 8, we're told during the tribulation, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's not Jesus. Here's how we know. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The him in this case in Revelation 13 is the Antichrist. And in verse 4 of Revelation 13, we're told the world worships the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Satan. The world worships the dragon who gave power to the beast. Now, this is not exclusive to the tribulation. What's exclusive to the tribulation is the worshiping of the beast, the human being empowered by the dragon. What is not exclusive to the tribulation is Satan worship because he is the god of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air of the fallen spiritual realm. Now remember, Antichrist means against Christ or instead of Christ. And Jesus said, he who is not with me is what? Yes. Antichrist. That's why John the Beloved would say there's many Antichrists out in the world right now. The spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world. It's speaking of the spirit of this uh, satanic worship system, not the individual we call the Antichrist. He's actually the beast of Revelation 13 more properly. And listen, if you're not for Jesus, you're against him. And who gives power to those against Christ? Satan. Satan. They live to declare his kingdom. Now that doesn't mean they walk around saying, I worship Satan, I'm declaring his kingdom is greatest of all. No, it means they promote his causes. It means that they, as the great digression in Romans chapter 1 tells us, they approve of those who do things that are an abomination before the Lord. And that's what we're seeing happening in our world today, sadly, and it's growing by the hour. And listen, if you're not for him, you're against him. Satan empowers those against Christ. It's the very definition of the man of sin that's coming, the son of perdition during the tribulation. But listen, here's the point by way of illustration that maybe it'll line things up for us. I always think it's kind of funny that if you hear, talk to somebody from England or Great Britain, they'll tell you we drive on the wrong side of the road. And when we describe it, we say they drive on the wrong side of the road. Well, the fact is we drive on opposite sides of the road, right? Yeah. And if you're a British person who comes here or an American person who goes there, you're in a different kingdom, right? Yeah. And there are different rules of the road in those two different kingdoms. Now, listen, if you say I'm an American and I'm going to obey American traffic laws, even though I'm in England, let me just say there's going to be problems. <laughs> Right? And the same is true when we are of a new kingdom. If we say, I'm of this new kingdom, I have a new king over me, yet I'm going to practice the things of the kingdom of darkness, there's going to be problems. And thankfully, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Anybody else been behind the woodshed with God? Yeah, I think we've all been there. Thank the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. Now, if you try and live by the rules of the kingdom of darkness while in the kingdom of light, it's going to be like swimming uphill. And it's going to be very difficult. You'll be going in the wrong direction. Why? Because the dead and alive serve different kings and kingdoms. And listen, it may not be the creepy, freaky looking things that we think of or have seen on TV. And uh, sorry, but 
Satan is not red. <laughs> and he doesn't have a pointy tail. And he's not holding a triton and all these other things we see portrayed. That's exactly who he wants us to think he is. But the Bible actually says he's perfectly beautiful. And he was even perfect or complete in wisdom before iniquity was found in him when he started to say, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. I'll be like the Most High. I'm the master of my own destiny. As a matter of fact, I'm smarter than God. We've already established we're not. So we need to surrender to the rule and authority of the kingdom we are in. Amen? Yeah. Now, let's move on to these two beautiful verses. Eight through ten. Three, rather. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his, what? Workmanship, Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? <coughs> Good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Now, Paul tells us two things that can't save us and points to the actual author and finisher of our faith being God's grace manifested through Jesus Christ. Now, we're saved by grace through faith, Amen. not of ourselves, not through works. Paul separates those two things, and we should too. Remember, we were dead. We had no capacity to respond to anything, and even our response to God's grace had to come from him. Couldn't be of ourselves. That's what Paul would write in Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a what? A measure of faith. Where did the faith come from? From who? From God. Romans 12 is dealing with the gifts of the Spirit. Who distributes the gifts of the Spirit individually as he wills? 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says they come from God or the Spirit distributes the gifts individually as he wills. Faith is among those gift, gifts. And we need to be careful about thinking of salvation as a transaction where God contributes grace, we contribute faith, and we both go on happily ever after. Even our faith came from him. Amen. Now, we couldn't contribute anything other than the sin that we needed saving from. And that is why Paul said, right after telling us we're saved through faith, that it's not of ourselves. Our faith is a gift that was given by God's grace. Now, some would like to debate the gift of faith, and some see it as faith is given exclusively to those unconditionally elected, and others see it as given to all, but not all act on it. I actually believe the answer is whom he foreknew, he gave the measure of faith that was necessary, because God knows all things, right? Yeah. But again, the question isn't whether you're saved by grace, by divine election, or free will. The big question is, are you saved at all? That's the most important question. Now, we're saved by grace, and grace in the Hebrew means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Through faith, God giving us the ability to trust in his Son as the only means of salvation and be born again into a new kingdom under a new king. And we hear a lot about grace today, and some of it is outside the boundaries of Scripture. And in some circles, it's as though it's the only doctrine taught in the whole Bible. But I want you to consider something. Tune in this morning. You ready? Yes. Jesus never taught on grace. Not one word. Not one word. He never taught a sermon on grace. He taught lots about repentance, yes. changing your mind and life direction. Listen, we've all heard about the Romans road, right? 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all the other things we find packaged in the Romans Road. Romans Road doesn't mention grace either. The Greek word charis, translated as grace, is used 131 times in the New Testament. Once in Luke, three times in John, 10 times in Acts, 24 times in Romans, 33 times it's used as a salutation, 60 times it's used to describe it as an attribute of God. Now, as I said, the Hebrew word for grace, chen, means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. The Greek word translated as grace, charis, means divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in a life. There's one word that could describe that act and action, holiness. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, through Jesus Christ, we are inspired in our hearts to reflect God in our lives. To live to what? Live to declare. Was, was it that long ago? <laughs> to live to declare. Now, how do we do that? Well, God has prepared that for us too. Through good works. Now, Paul says we are God's workmanship. The Greek term used there is poema. And the word means that which has been made by God. In our case, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, Paul, I think, wants to remind us we have been recreated by God in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, when others see us, they should inquire as to who remade us, like the portrait we mentioned at the outset. But listen, here's the final point in question form from these pinnacle verses, and I think you'll find it worthy of note. Listen this morning. How can we not live to declare him after all he has done for us? I mean, instead of getting into all these debates about this and that and works and grace and all that, uh, how about we just boil it down to this? How can we not live to declare him? How can we not worship him after all he has done for us? Yeah. We were dead. He made us alive. We had no faith. He gave us the measure appropriate to trusting in him. He's done all the work. And listen, good works are vital to salvation, but not in the sense of merit or deservedness, but as its byproduct and evidence. We're not saved by works. But we are created, that's the initial act, the regeneration in Christ Jesus for good works, works that God prepared in advance, which he designed in eternity past, and for which he has fashioned us individually so that we should continuously be about the Father's business, just like Jesus. Now listen, being saved by grace doesn't create an exemption from repentance or serving him, but rather it enables us to repent and qualifies us to serve him, not out of obligation, but rather adoration. We were dead in sins, but God even when we were dead in sins, made us alive in Christ. And in Romans 1, 5 to 6, we're told through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then in 6, 12 to 14, he would say, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your what? Mortal body that you should obey its lust. Isn't this some of the devices of the kingdom of the power of the air that Paul mentioned in our text, lust. And do not present your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, 
but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead or live before God as though he's made you alive and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Listen to this. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You know what that means? You got a new king and kingdom. We're not any longer under the former kingdom. For you are not under law, but under grace. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul would say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, speaking of the other, other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And listen, being saved by grace through faith doesn't exempt us from good works. It puts us to work. And how can we live to declare him if we act nothing like him? Or we act like we're from the other kingdom? Now, let me ask you this morning. Have you ever felt like you should do something and then you didn't do it? You felt awful afterwards? You know what I'm talking about, right? You just knew there was something you ought to do. You didn't do it and you felt terrible. Let me ask you this. Who wants to live like that? I don't want to live like that. Do you want to live in a manner that grieves the Holy Spirit who's in you and then therefore you? I don't want to live like that. There's enough problems without creating my own. I don't need any self-inflicted wounds. How about you? We got enough fiery darts coming in to, to handle without uh, creating our own problems. But we need to remember from Colossians 1, 13 to 14, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transported us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the what? Forgiveness of sins. Now, listen, let me just say this in conclusion. I don't serve him because I have to. I serve him because I'm his and I want to. I'm part of a new kingdom and I have a new king. And I want my conduct to reflect the king and kingdom of the one who conveyed me into the kingdom of the son of his love. Listen, not so he will accept me, but because he already has. See, I was dead in trespasses and sins. But in Christ, I was made alive. And I want to live like I'm a child of the king with a new king over me and a new kingdom. Somebody say amen. amen. And Father, we are grateful for these magnificent words this morning. And Lord, I pray that in some way uh, we would arrive at some freedom from all the debate as Paul uh, warned uh, not to get into these uh, babbling uh, between particular interpretations and Lord, but rather we would have clarity from the whole counsel of God to see that we were dead and only you could make us alive. And you did, even when we were dead by our trespasses and sins. And we thank you you're still doing that today. So Lord, I pray that none here or online or down the road watching this would think that maybe they had earned the right to go to heaven or that they had been moral enough or done enough good things for other people to make their way into the kingdom but they would realize they need to be conveyed into the kingdom by the son of your love. So we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful ability that you have to transport us from one kingdom to another, to get us out from under the authority of the power of the prince of the air and move us into the authority of your kingship and kingdom. And help us, God, to remember we're not trying to earn anything. We are trying to live to declare the glory of God. And help us, Lord, not to see any effort on our part or the words of any other to, to be putting someone under the law or any type of 
thou shalt not, but rather the freedom to create in others a wonder about what you've done in us. Help us to live that way for your namesake and glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.